Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the John Oakley Show podcast for Thursday, August 27, 2020. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation joins us to talk about bailouts, cuts, and the ballooning debt. We talk to a doctor doing important research on a COVID vaccine for Canada. And we discuss the reasons for a boycott in both the NBA and the NHL. All this coming up right now. The Chamber of Commerce in Canada was saying six out of ten restaurants won't survive the next three months. Uh, not a lot of sympathy or love, though. A lot of people saying, well, you know what? Everybody's in dire straits. Let them go because we can't afford another bailout. Affordability of these big-ticket items and projects is something that does loom on the horizon, even though it doesn't seem to register now with our ruling class. But Aaron Woodrick has been keeping tabs. He's a federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and is with us on the line here on the Oakley Show. Aaron, always a pleasure. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me, John. You know, Aaron, we'll ask you outright, uh, when the Chamber says six out of ten restaurants and food service people in the hospitality industry are going under, unless there's some help, should there be a lifeline extended? Boy, it's a a tough one, John. You know, we're skinflints and we don't like spending money at the best of times, but this is obviously an unusual situation. And you won't find us complaining about a lot of the money that went out the door since March because it's hard to see what the alternative was. But I think if some of your callers hit the nail on the head is there's no real end in sight in this and it's impossible to save everyone. So the question then becomes, do we start picking and choosing and some people get special treatment, others don't, because it's just not possible for us to save everyone, no matter no matter how much we try and borrow. All right, and we're racking up debt that's uh, eye-glazing now. I mean, I don't know if the number, I don't have that many zeros on my pocket calculator, but nonetheless, uh, the question then you know, is how are we going to pay this back? Where should the spending be addressed? I mean, uh, is there a way of even reconciling it in your mind at this point? Yeah, I mean, right now, it's hard to even put a timeline on it. You know, we're a group that's usually seen deficits where within three to five years, it's no sweat. And you barely even need to cut things. You just need to hold the line. That's not going to happen this time. Uh, this is a this is a, a massive deficit, at least 10 to 15 times larger than we thought in February. Um, we still have no idea how bad things are going to be, even on the revenue side, which is the other part of the story. I mean, with all, even with all the spending, um, even if you turn that tap off, the economy has not recovered, and the money is just not coming in the other side. So we're really at the point right now, John, where we're basically spending $2 for every dollar coming in, and that is just astronomically more than we've ever had in any deficit in recent Well, it's also unsustainable, but is there a tipping point at which we get into what's called the structural deficit, and you're really like in quicksand then. The more you struggle, the harder it is to get out, and you're ultimately sunk. Are we getting close to that point? I think we're certainly close to it, and certainly the the, the language around what we're hearing from the Prime Minister and his new finance minister talking about going big. I mean, the idea that now is the time to borrow when we've just had to borrow an unplanned $300 billion, that now of all times is the time to borrow even more for pie-in-the-sky plans about how to reshape the economy, I think is just a, a catastrophic idea. Are we borrowing it or printing it? Somebody said earlier uh, they're just printing it because, you know, they have the wherewithal to do that. The provinces and municipalities don't. Uh, where's the money coming from? 
Yeah, it's both. Uh, the Bank of Canada is purchasing a lot, uh, purchasing a lot of bonds. Uh, the problem, of course, is it comes down to interest rates. That, that, it's, right now, John, the story is this. If we did not have interest rates as low as they are, we would already be in the middle of a massive fiscal crisis. Uh, and the problem is the government does not control interest rates. The Bank of Canada does. Interest rates could rise. There's a story today saying the Bank of Canada is worried they may have to raise rates. Um, and that, of course, is a huge problem. Anyone who's got a mortgage knows boy, if you have to renew and rates are a lot higher than last time, that, that blows a huge hole in your budget. And that's what I worry about uh, on the federal level. Aaron, why would they be considering raising rates? Well, look, there's a number of factors that it's complicated to, to explain, but uh, the Bank of Canada, they can't continue to just print money forever. You get inflation could run away with itself. You sometimes have to raise interest rates to get that under control. And that's really the, sort of what a lot of these people who are not worried about debt are banking on. They think we should just gamble that rates will stay low forever. Uh, you know, if they're right, yeah, we won't have a problem for a while. But if they're wrong... We are going to have a massive problem, and, and I think if 2020 has taught, taught us anything at all, it's, we should probably uh, be prepared for the un, unexpected rather than just hope it'll never show up. Again, with Aaron Woodrig, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the situation we find ourselves in, uh, is there any way out? Aaron, you do posit that there might be some ways we could at least start nibbling at the edges, including looking at the public sector. Absolutely. I know it's a tough conversation, but uh, the reality is we couldn't even afford the government we had before the pandemic, never mind now. And we need to start looking at places we can save money. Anyone that works outside of government has taken a pay cut. They've lost their job. They've lost their business. Uh, And to most people, what they see is that everyone in government, no one has sacrificed a dime. Not a job has been lost. And in fact, some people are getting raises. And I just think that uh, that's tenured. I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think it's fair. You know, we're supposed to be all in this together. But the idea that if you work outside of government, you bear all the pain of this crisis. But if you're in government, you bear nothing. I I just don't think that's reasonable or fair to most people. I'm actually shocked that we haven't seen anybody come to the fore, you know, one of our uh, political leaders and say something like, uh, we're willing to share the burden because we're all in this together. We're going to take a 20 percent haircut or something like that. How come that hasn't happened? Yeah, it's been surprising. You know, we put that out there several months ago, and you've seen it in other places. You know, one of the, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's best friends, Prime Minister of New Zealand, uh, Jacinda Ardern, she, she came out and took a 20% pay cut. She specifically said it was to show leadership and solidarity. I think it earned her a lot of goodwill with, with, her, you know, with her electorate, and I think we should have seen that here. I, I don't think it's a lot to ask. You know, MPs make $180,000 a year. Asking them to take a, a slight pay cut just to show that they understand what the rest of us are going through. I think would have been a really smart move. Yeah, it's more symbolic than practical, although it does, you know, it's a marginal savings, uh, maybe a couple of hundred million all in, but still, I can't believe I'm actually saying that out loud. And as you mentioned then, Aaron, uh, we've got some big ticket items being promised in the pipeline when they come back off prorogation. And we heard uh, where Christian Freeland was telegraphing that uh, all Canadians understand that decarbonization has to be part of an economic recovery. Uh, I don't see it that way. Do you? I really don't. I, I'm not sure who, which Canadian she's talking to. I think what most Canadians want, John, is they want their lives back. They just want to be able to pay their bills, have a job, live their lives. The idea that now of all times is an opportunity to have these, as they call them, pie-in-the-sky grand schemes. Uh, I mean, people who live in Ontario will know what happened the last time a government tried that with the Liberal government under Dalton McGuinty. It was a disaster. It cost tens of billions of dollars, did not create all these promised jobs. The idea that we want to replicate that on a federal scale during the middle of a pandemic, I think is just a catastrophic idea. 
Finally, Aaron, how important is this back-to-school initiative? I mean, some parents are still balking, but uh, getting the kids back to school as it has impact on the overall economy, how important? I think it's quite important. I mean, I've got young kids myself. I'm sending them back. Uh, Like all parents, there's a little bit of anxiety, but the top doctor in Ontario has signed off on it. That's good enough for me. And I think, uh, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that uh, that things are going to go well. Right. And that's an infusion into the economy. Uh, The revenue base uh, is expanded because more parents are going to go back to work now because schools are, for all intents and purposes, uh, as much daycares as anything else. Aaron, always great to uh, touch base and find out where your heads are at when it comes to uh, looking after the taxpayers' money. Hopefully we can shut off the spigot sooner rather than later. Uh, You stay well. Thanks a lot, John. Aaron Woodrick, Federal Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. There is one development that I think bears uh, a little bit of attention, and that has to do with something we're all on tenterhooks waiting to find out about, and that's a vaccine. A vaccine for this drat plague so that we can all get back to a sense of normalcy, see our economy recover, and so on and so forth. And the good news is there is something on development that looks promising out of the University of Saskatchewan. One of the principals behind that, Dr. Volker Gertz, is the Associate Director of Research of the Vaccine and Infectious Diseases Organization at the University of Saskatchewan. Quite a mouthful. Dr. Gertz, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Well, all right. Uh, We've got a vaccine under development. Uh, Where do we stand with that right now at the University of Saskatchewan? Yeah, it's going really well. So we uh, we demonstrated that it works uh, well in animals, and now we're producing clinical material to start our uh, trials in humans, our clinical trials, as soon as possible. So we're hoping that uh, will be early fall. Early fall. Uh, tests on humans in the early fall? Because I understand there are also uh, phase three, if you call them that, human test trials taking place on other fronts that are developing a vaccine. How are we doing on the timeline relative to them? Well, so um, you're right. I mean, there is some vaccine candidates that are already um, ahead of us. They're in phase three trials. Um, Many of those technologies are new technologies that have never been um, used or tested in humans before. Um, So some may work really well, some may not. Um, We are working on a technology that is much more proven technology. and, um, you know, while it's maybe taking longer, a little bit now, our technology has a lot of advantages in that it's uh, easier to produce it so we can make more doses in a quicker time. And it's also a very safe technology that is um, proven very efficacious and for many vaccine technologies. Dr. Gertz, I'm assuming you're working with a sense of urgency, right? Yes, absolutely. That's what we're working on. We're, we're essentially working in, I wouldn't say day and night, but very, very long days and, and of course, um, throughout the weekends and so on. And so right now where we are is we're getting this material manufactured. Um, you probably have heard in the news Canada has a somewhat limited capacity to manufacture all these components that go into a vaccine. And so um, what we're doing right now is coordinating all of that, working with companies in both Montreal as well in the Toronto area, um, getting the material done as quickly as possible so that we can enter these clinical trials in, in the fall. Why do we have a limited capacity? Is that something, uh, you know, government uh, maybe overlooked, or why is that? Well, I, you know, um, after SARS-1, I think there was a recognition that these emerging diseases have a huge impact, and so the country was preparing for it, and there was a big push on pandemic preparedness. And then over the last um, few years, maybe 
some of the priorities have changed, and we also have seen that some of these uh, manufacturing facilities that we had were purchased by companies and then essentially moved um, to other places outside Canada. So the, the country finds itself right now with limited capacity to manufacture vaccines. That has been recognized by the government, and we and others have received funding to build more manufacturing facilities. So that's, that's uh, being addressed right now. But unfortunately for the COVID-19, for, uh, for the current situation, we have to go to places even outside of Canada to get certain components of the vaccine manufactured. Sounds very familiar, as was the case with PPE. So uh, we dropped the ball on emergency preparedness, could you say? <laughs> You're putting words in my mouth. I'm, I'm not sure if we dropped the ball, but unfortunately we find ourselves right now in a situation where um, we don't have enough capacity at the moment. But as I said, the government has recognized it and is trying to address it as quickly as we all can. All right. Again, uh, Dr. Volker Gertz at the University of Saskatchewan working on a vaccine. The timeline, uh, you're saying sometime early in the next year, 2021, uh, you can say that with confidence? Well, so what we're doing, what I said is um, we're starting our clinical trials in the fall of this year, and we're very confident that everything will go well. And so then the larger testing, what's called the phase three, the one that you referred to, will start um, sometime spring of next year. And as soon as those are completed, our vaccine will be available. And so what are the early test results like on the animals? And which animals, by the way, do you use in such tests? And how do you know the efficacy? Yeah, so Vito Intervac is is a really, really uh, very large uh, research organization here at the University of Saskatchewan. And we were the first in Canada to isolate the virus and also to first to establish an animal model that allows us to test these vaccines and drugs, by the way, too, antivirals and so on. And so the animal model that we initially established was the ferret model, but we also now have a hamster model going. And those are the two most common models around the world that are being used to test these um, new vaccine candidates or new antivirals or new therapeutics. And so we have been working over the last um, four or five months with now over 50 different companies, uh, Canadian and international companies. And while developing our own vaccine, we're also assisting these others in testing their candidates in these animal models. Uh, so Vito Intervac is really a large research organization here with a mandate of, of you know, providing, uh, I guess, infrastructure, our high containment facility here to these companies to ensure that everybody can as rapidly as possible develop their technologies. Dr. Kurtz, uh, is this proprietary uh, development uh, insofar as the University of Saskatchewan would own it? Uh, would it be you know, public domain? Is there a drug company that's you know, co-sponsoring or co-opting this? Uh, to whom would the benefit accrue? I mean, apart from the people who would be taking the vaccine, uh, how do you see it? Well, at the moment, um, the technology that, that goes into this vaccine is owned by the University of Saskatchewan. But our business model is really to work with um, companies together. And, and, you know, in terms of the commercial path forward, we would partner with companies that then eventually make commercially manufacture this vaccine, and they would then uh, get a license to the technology. I see. Well, that's why there's an international race on AstraZeneca, I guess, out of Oxford. That study, uh, they've been subsidized with tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, and already people have put claims in with, I guess, number of doses. Is that not correct? That's correct, yeah. So they, they, um, they took the OXA technology, and they're trying now to uh, globally make it available um, by licensing it to various countries in the world. Yeah, and 
there are some promises being uh, made now, I guess, or speculation that it'll be ready by early in the year or maybe before the year is out. Uh, can you see that timeline being fulfilled? So I think it really depends on how, how many doses you're talking about. From what I understand is um, that they may be able to start um, um, distributing a few, like, you know, a few million doses uh, late this year, maybe early next year, um, and then more and more in 2021. Um, again, we'll have to see how well that vaccine works. I mean, that is one of those technologies that has never been in humans before. Like, there is no currently registered product using that approach. Um, I think the data that I've seen looks very promising, so I think it's very good for all of us. Um, but, you know, we'll have to see how these new technologies work. Both the Oxford vaccine as well as the Moderna vaccine are using very new approaches, and, and you know, we'll have to see how well they work. Now, typically uh, with a vaccine, these are tested at scale, hundreds of thousands of people, placebo tests uh, as well uh, as a control. And are some of those uh, corners going to be cut or steps uh, will be skipped in order to get this thing, something out there, a viable vaccine out? Do you see that happening? No. So I think this is a very important message for your listeners. Um, the, the approval process as, is as rigorous as it normally is. Um, you know, the Oxford vaccine right now is in these phase three trials um, involving thousands of volunteers, and, and so is the Moderna. So they're going through the same regulatory process as you normally would have. Um, I think everybody is just, because of the urgency, is trying to, you know, get it faster than as possible. And so many of these activities are now, you know, tighter scheduled and, and even with a little bit of an overlap, but the actual process is still the same as it normally is. I see. You know, I just wanted to back up because I'm really curious why you're using ferrets and hamsters. Uh, why are they the chosen beasts? Yeah, that's a good question. So ferrets are, um, you know, they have a, um, receptors on the surface of the cell that allow these viruses to get in. And so the receptor for the COVID-19 virus the SARS-CoV-2, which we call it, um, is very similar on ferrets um, compared to humans. And so therefore, uh, this virus can infect ferrets too. And so then you actually see a little bit of a disease in there. Uh, the virus is able to replicate in their lungs, cause respiratory symptoms that are similar to humans. So it's the fact that they are very similar in terms of the infection and, and somewhat of the disease too. And so they're, they're a good model for this purpose. And, and the same is true for hamsters. They also have this receptor and, and again, um, you know, are, are showing also, or, you know, in these hamsters, the virus is able to infect their lungs and, and replicate, which means uh, make more copies and shed it than to other animals. Well, if they take us clear to the other side and we develop a vaccine as a result, I think a rodent should get the Order of Canada or something like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> Dr. Dr. Gertz, I appreciate your time and your explanation, and we're all keeping our fingers crossed that something does, in fact, come out sooner rather than later, and ideally at the University of Saskatchewan. Thanks for your time this afternoon. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. You got it. Well, there you go. The ferrets and the hamsters and the COVID-19. And they knew the hamster, I mean, you know, starts to get winded real fast on the treadmill, so this is how they knew. Uh, not a great day if you wanted to watch sports tonight. I don't know, but yeah, I sort of got drawn back into it, the whole NHL playoffs. But uh, according to sources, they're taking a pass as a consequence of uh, what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin. This in concert with the other leagues, primarily the NBA. And uh, so 
I guess there's the Republican National Convention. Donald Trump's going to give his acceptance speech. Ivanka's going to speak, Rudy Giuliani, and so on and so forth. Uh, it'll be a wrap sometime around 11 p.m. Eastern. So uh, now you know on the timeline there, case you've got, uh, again, addicted to or bitten by the bug of pro sports being played right in the middle of the summer. Now the NBA taking... This particular night off, as well as last night, by way of boycott, uh, some are saying, well, they're postponing the games. Let's make no mistake. It's a boycott for sure, and they wanted to make a statement about uh, the injustice that they see in America primarily, as well as uh, police brutality and so on and so forth. We know the drill. Uh, could they have done a more emphatic thing by pulling the plug on the entire season, as some, like LeBron James, were suggesting or angling towards. Let's find out. Parminder Singh has joined us on the line, Punjabi sports broadcaster, the play-by-play commentator for the NBA in Punjabi, as well as the guy who founded that whole uh, idiom or uh, expression in hockey uh, as their commentator. Parminder, a pleasure to have you back on the show. How are things? Pleasure to be back, John. Things are well. Considering circumstances. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a lot of circumstances to address, Perminder. By the way, uh, what do you make of the statement by the NBA, as well as some, uh, I guess, the NHL had been criticized for not following suit last night. Uh, What do you make of it all? No, certainly. And I think that's, you know, just given what has kind of progressed and transgressed at all costs North America with uh, the BLM and just considering the, the the uprise, if you may, and 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 I know the NBA players who have always been vocal, and and then looking at the the four year anniversary today when Colin Kaepernick first kneeled down, uh, and and equating it to the recent shooting, uh, it, you know it's quite disturbing in itself, and uh, and the players did take action, the NBA players, and, and boycotted the game so. You see this as a powerful statement for racialized people? Do you think that this is sending a signal that uh, we've got your back, so to speak? Certainly, certainly. And I think that, uh, you know, it's uh, we're, we're in 2020. And I think at, uh, at some point, uh, you know, I, even me growing up in Canada, you know, I grew up in, in Jane and Finch in Toronto and uh, having faced a lot of racism, being the only kid that kind of stood out with a turban, um, you know, it's, it kind of hits you differently. And and I think that showing that there are individuals in position of power who who care, I think, resonates a lot with with those who would face this uh, on a daily basis. And I think if, if you have not, if you've never felt an outsider in any situation, or uh, or especially in a situation where it's to things that you cannot change, such as the color of your skin, then you wouldn't know what I'm talking about. But, uh, but, but those who have and realized how important this is and, and for to see the unity amongst the leagues on this, uh, you know, really goes to show that, you know, sports, it, it's meant to unite. 
and and you know, it did that for me as a kid. You know, I went to school, talked about sports, watched the games, and discussed it. Made more friends that way. Played sports and made more friends that way. And and you know, in this day and age, and I, as you know, as a city who's cheering behind their own team, and and we have this sense of camaraderie. So I think being united against racism uh, is a very important step, and I'm, I'm glad that the leagues did take that step. Again, with Parminder Singh, who does the play-by-play for the NBA in Punjabi, do you think it might have been even more impactful if they had followed, say, uh, the directive LeBron James was really anxious to pull the plug on the season, and uh, some of the Clippers, Clippers as well, uh, do you think that would have been uh, even more impactful to do that, really get people's attention? I, I, you know, it's... It's certainly when you're when you're high on that the emotion to to kind of look at what the options truly mean and what their impact would be. Um, you know, you pull the plug on the season, uh, you almost lose the voice for the rest of the season as well. Uh, so I'm not too sure exactly where. And there's a lot of chatter with the the players and so forth. But uh, uh, in, in one sense, I'm, I'm glad they have not pulled the plug on the season because you can continue talking about this. And it's about educating the masses. And, and this is a great platform, I think, that they can discuss and so forth. But there are a lot of players who feel similar to LeBron James, that uh, how can they continue to go and, and entertain, if you may, when all of this is happening in the background? You know, uh, because this uh, whole thing has been a demand for change, I'm kind of curious, from your perspective, what does change mean? What, what is the change that's necessary? Again, it's I, we can look at it in a, in a multi-pronged approach. I think here, it, you know, it's quite evident with the, the the police brutality faced by the black community, and and that is the change that they're pushing for. But the form of you know systemic racism that that meets the eye and that that does not, and I, I think it's equally important. And you know, I, I look at uh, what uh, what Masai Ujiri said uh, not too long ago that even though he was the president of, you know, the Raptors, but yet, you know, he almost felt guilty hiring, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of twisting a bit of his words, but, but almost, uh, I guess, in essence, he was saying that it was, you know, he did not think of, or, or he felt a bit guilty about hiring another black executive and so forth. That, you know, it's, it's that kind of notion, whether it's um, sports, and I, I look at sports because that's one thing I can talk about. It's you know sports journalism, um, our, our network execs, and so forth. That it's there's so many different layers, and and I think we're we're we're, we're starting the groundwork uh, that you know we can start truly looking at individuals for the qualities that they bring, for what it is that they bring, and and not deny them of opportunities because of the color of their skin or their or their beliefs. Maybe you can flush that out a little more fully here. I mean, uh, how is the racism manifest in the system? I know Masayo Jury brought that up as well. I mean, with your own experience, I mean, did you have to build the boat you're sailing on right now, in effect, approaching somebody and proposing that you would do play-by-play in Punjabi, ditto for the NHL and Hockey Night in Canada? How'd that come about? No, it, you know, I, I think I've been blessed and, and lucky in, in that sense. Um, you know, I, I got an opportunity to be on uh, on radio. I was on 680 uh, because of Peter Gross, who had uh, invited me to come on board as a sports, sports intern when I was in high school. Uh, but then after that, I, I couldn't really find a job in uh, a, on, on English radio, and I went on to Omni and started doing work in Punjabi, became a Punjabi sports reporter. 
And then it was the vision of Joel Darling at CBC who said, hey, listen, we're 2008, we're doing calling the Olympics, we're, or we're calling the hockey games in, in Mandarin, let's try other languages. Uh, so they tried out Punjabi. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of waiting for a day where we're going to have a turbaned, you know, sideline sports reporter or an anchor. And, um, and it's not due to lack of, uh, you know, skills or talent. I just feel that uh, you know it, it's it's about the opportunities that uh, we need to we need to provide uh, for the, the the folks that may not have them you know on a on a daily basis. I wouldn't have had an internship. I did not know anybody in in you know sports journalism or or on radio or on television. Uh, but uh, you know, the, and these are rarities. I mean, they're you know we are anomalies. But I believe. And I truly feel that one day that, uh, you know, whether it's, it's, it's the black kids on my neighborhood who's so passionate or, or, or that turban kid, that they would also have equal opportunities to, to be there. And the question becomes as those individuals in power, that are we really trying or taking an extra step to ensure that, that we are pulling in uh, the kids who may want to, but just don't have the network or contacts to do so? Could we concede that we're making progress, though? I mean, you look at the faces, uh, well, with Hockey Night in Canada on the main panel, even, you know, from your own background, you've got the leader of a major Canadian uh, political party, uh, so there are some strides having been taken of recent vintage anyway, would you not say? Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and and mind you, I'm still not over the fact that they didn't hire me for my colorful turbans to replace Don Cherry, but uh, (laughs) I... I think, uh, no, you're absolutely right. I think that uh, we, we are making strides, and, and probably far greater strides than the U.S. And my own personal experience being in the Oracle Arena uh, in, in, you know, in Oakland when the playoffs or the finals were taking place, that, uh, you know, my, my co-host, Preet, and I were the only turbaned individuals uh, on, on the court. And, uh, you know, it's uh, in Canada, yes, we are making far greater strides, I would say. Uh, but those certainly do not resonate south of the border, and uh, they're, they have far more challenges than we do. And I think that, uh, uh, but but that's being Canadian. It's a little bit different. I think that we are exposed, and we accept uh, that uh, you know it's 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 a collective that has built the country that we we currently have. Was there a palpable feeling that uh, there was something uh, amiss in Oakland at the Oracle? I mean, at the time when you guys were the only ones with turbans doing a play-by-play in that, did, did you get that sense? No, certainly. I think, you know, when you look around the arena and, and with the Raptors, you you see the multiculturalism. You didn't see that there, right? And I think, uh, uh, or not to the extent, but with the exception of all the Raptors fans who were there. And, uh, and I think it's, you know, and... and by all means, I think the one thing that security didn't miss out on was double-checking our media credentials. But, you know, it's these kind of little things, you know, that uh, over the years that we've kind of come accustomed to or accept, which uh, I, I don't feel that uh, maybe my kids should need to face. And, and that's why we need to do the things and make better of ourselves and, and our communities and, and our networks today to ensure that there is a better future. Uh, for the next generation. Uh, amen to that. Moving towards a better day. Uh, Parminder, always a pleasure. I appreciate that. Uh, are you doing any of the hockey stuff at all anymore or not? No, no. So with the Leafs gone, it's, uh, um, you know, I shouldn't say this out loud, but 
having been a Leafs fan for all this time, it's always it hurts a little bit more. But uh, mm. uh, I was hoping to kind of follow through with them, but uh, it, that that didn't happen this season, and, and now I'm not so hopeful for well, next season. <laughs> I, you know, it's something we get used to. Uh, there you are. Parminder Singh, uh, sportscaster, uh, play-by-play commentator for the NBA in Punjabi. Uh, Always appreciate it. Thank you. Stay well. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure. This has been the Oakley Show podcast for Thursday, August 27, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 